message from Valley Bible Fellowship. It is our sincere prayer that you're richly blessed through the ministry of the Word. For more information about VBF, visit our website at vbf.org. Now, here's Pastor Ron Bietti. Good morning. This is our church. It's God's church. We welcome you today. We welcome everybody on the internet. We hope you're excited we hope you had great holidays, and we hope that you're losing weight now. Uh, I've been doing a Bible study. We got going in the Bible study, but I'm a creature of habit. And every year, the holidays get me out of rhythm. I'm a one, two, three, out, one, two, three, out, one, two, three, out. That's just what I do. And so, Ben, I'm out of rhythm. I'm going to stay out of rhythm another couple weeks, and then we'll come back to the Bible study and today I want to talk to you about the last days and why I believe that we are definitely living in the last of the last days. Uh, when I was little, we would go on trips out of town, and I'd always be asking my dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, Ronnie, we're not there yet. And I think a lot of you, when you were younger, you older people especially, you did that too. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We got anxious. Now, today, I'm not so sure that that continues to happen because today, our kids, man, they have tablets and laptops, and they have their phones, and uh, a lot of cars have the big video screen. They can watch videos. Uh, you know, talking about all this modern technology, did you see where Alexa tells a 10-year-old child last week to take a penny and, and touch an exposed electrical outlet. Alexa told him to do it, a 10-year-old. It was called a dare. And CNN covered it, CNBC covered it. I went on Snopes. They said, no, that's not, that, that's true. It really happened. And Alexa says, now they've got it, you know, taken care of. But I, that's kind of scary, huh? But when I was little, we didn't have the tablets. We didn't have the internets. We didn't have any of that stuff. In fact, my family, we would always play a game, and I don't know if my family made it up or if anybody else did it, and it was a game called Beaver. As you were driving down the road, if you see a station wagon, you go, Beaver, and the first person to say it, they'd get a point. If the car happened to not be a station wagon, you got a point taken away. At least that was my family's version. We had to make up games. We had to be more creative, right? Um, and of course, I was an ornery little boy when they didn't play beaver with me, I thought of my own things to do. Back in that day, we used to have pickups with camper shells, and you could actually ride back there. When you went on vacation, anybody ride back in the camper shells? Yes. Um, it wasn't against the law. And you could, leave, you could leave the back up. I guess you did that so your kids didn't die of gas fumes or whatever. <laughs> you left the back up. I remember one year, me and my little Henri cousin, he was Henri, he was a year older than me, I say little. And uh, we got bored, so we found some crackers in the back of the camper shell. And so we decided to start chewing them up till we got a big wad in our mouth. And then with all the cars that were behind us, we'd lean over the tailgate and act like we were throwing up and we'd spit all those crackers all over their car, everything. 
And we did that for about 10 miles, I guess, until someone pulled my dad over honking and he came back. He said, what are you doing? And he found the crackers and they told my dad what we were doing. That's neither here nor there. I got a lot of stuff to cover. But we made up our own games, right? Uh, But back to the idea, are we there yet? People are always asking me, are we there yet, Pastor Ron? Is the vaccine card, is that the mark of the beast? No. But are we there yet? How close are we? Now, approximately 51 years ago yesterday, Debbie became pregnant with our first child, Tara, Pastor Jim's daughter. And I was looking for a picture to show you. Debbie was the cutest little thing. She was 19 years old, pregnant, and Debbie was always like 4 foot 11, 95 pounds, little thing. And I got a picture of a little skirt on, a little short skirt, and a little belly just like this. I mean, no fat, just, just her belly. That was it. Well, you know what? When Debbie got pregnant, we knew she was pregnant. We had no doubt about it. Uh, we didn't think she'd be pregnant for five years or six years. We knew pretty much that it was going to be a nine-month thing. And as the months rolled on, her tummy got bigger and her body temperature changed. She was hot all the time when it was cold outside and she wanted weird food and she started, we started feeling the baby move around. We knew she was pregnant, not a doubt about it. Now, we didn't know the exact date we should give birth. We couldn't say, this is the date that she'll give birth, but we knew the approximate time. And so I remember, and I know some of you won't like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I, I knew it was coming New Year's Eve. On New Year's Eve, she, had, she hadn't had Terry yet. And I was very, very selfish. I wanted my, my, my write-off, my tax write-off. And I was trying to tell her, Debbie, you've got to have that baby. You've got to have the baby for the New Year's, for the New Year's. And so I came up with this idea that I'd give her castor oil if she'd take it. And so I asked her, I said, Debbie, I've got this idea. You can say no. But would you take some castor oil so we can have this baby and get our New Year's write-off? And she said, man, I don't know. So we called the doctor. And I asked the doctor, I said, can, can we give my wife castor oil? And he says, no. He was at a New Year's Eve party. He said, no, no way, no way. It's like 6 o'clock in the evening or 5. And then five minutes later, he calls back. And he says, not a bad idea. Why don't you try it? It won't hurt her. And so I said, Debbie, you want to do it? She says, I'm up for it. Drink this castor oil. And so about 9 o'clock that night, I said, how are you feeling? And she said, just a little gas pains, that's all. I said, gas pains? So we went ahead and, and called the doctor. He says, get her down here now. We were to the hospital, and two hours later, we had the baby. Two hours later. But we had her after midnight, <laughs> like 1230. But it wasn't for no reason at all. We were the first baby in the New Year's in that year, and we got to go on two local television shows, and we got all these presents. And didn't get my tax write off, but, you know, it, it, uh, it was okay. Now... Much in the same way, the Bible tells us that we will know when the return of Christ is getting close. Uh, Look at Luke 12. Be dressed in readiness. Hello, sermon's over for some of you. Be dressed in readiness. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps burning. I like it. Wish I had more time. Be like men who are waiting for the master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and it turns out that a shower comes. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be a hot day. And you know what? It turns out that way. 
you hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Oh, look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 and 5. It says, while they were saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light, sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. And then in Matthew 24, the disciples just came up to Jesus and flat out asked him, when's the end of the, t- end of the age? When's it going to happen? And you know what? He went on to give them a lot of details. He didn't mind answering that question. Look at Matthew 24, 1 through 3. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to, to him and pointed out the temple building. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of age. Now, Jesus goes on and tells them there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, nation rising up against nation, kingdom rising up against kingdom. We see all this happening. The Muslims, kingdom against kingdom. I mean, a lot of you might not know, but you know what? The Muslims fight one another because there's two forms of Islam. There's the Sunnis and the Shiites, and they don't get along. And they don't always like each other. They, they, they uh, you know, are separated in the Middle East. In fact, we're told that probably about 85 to 87% of the Muslims in the Middle East in that area are Sunni Muslims. Uh, for example, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia uh, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, they're Sunni Muslims. But now, Iran, on the other hand, they are Shiites. Iraq is 65 to 70% Shiites. Now, I might say more about this next week because this is going to be a conversation I will not come near completing today. Uh, Now, what's the difference between the Shiites and the Sunnis? Well, one of the major differences is the Shiites believe that from Muhammad down, Every successor and leader of the Muslim world should be direct blood of Muhammad. That's what the Sunnis believe. I mean, the Shiites believe, excuse me. The Sunnis, on the other hand, they believe that the replacement for each succession of of leaders should be the best man for the job. They don't think they have to be blood-related to Muhammad. And that creates all kinds of problems because now they all have different leaders saying different things. These different leaders have different uh, opinions about the Middle East, and it just adds to all kinds of problems. And so they're constantly fighting one another. But I've said this for years. One common trait that all the radical Muslims have, whether they're Sunni or Shiite, one common uh, interest they all have is the, 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 the radicals hate Israel. They hate Israel. They hate what Israel stands for. Remember, according to the the radical Muslims, 
They believe that Israel is the little Satan and the United States is the big Satan. And so keep in mind when you see uh, these radical Muslims hating Israel, that if they ever were able to demolish Israel, they'd come right after us because we are the big Satan. They are the little Satan. Now, Jesus goes on in that passage, and he says, you'll see famines, you'll see earthquakes, all of this stuff. And then we get to verse 8, and it says, but all these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, I have to do a little review here this morning, because if we're going to move on, there's so many people that have never heard a prophetic message. There are a lot of people who have never heard me teach on prophecy. So we got to kind of do a little review, but let me take you down to verse 32 and 34 in, in Matthew, where it says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation, now remember this verse, I say to you, this generation, what's a generation, maybe 75, 80 years, this generation that sees these things happen will not pass away until everything takes place. Now, it's not just these things in general because there are a lot of more generic, but I think there's one, one specific thing this verse is, 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 is speaking about, and that's the budding of the fig tree. Now, this is a parable, the fig tree parable, and God wants to get across one thing to us in this parable of the fig tree. Now, look at Hosea 9 and 10. It says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Here, the fig tree applies to the nation Israel. Look at Joel 1, 6, and 7. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it's it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters, my nation. The nation is compared to a fig tree there. So he says in this passage, it's a dual-fold meaning, I think. He says, when you see a tree begin to blossom and you see the leaves coming on it, you know that warm weather is right around the corner. And in the same way, I think what he's saying here is, when you see my nation Israel begin to blossom, when you see them beginning to bear fruit, when you see them come home to their homeland, I want you to know that that generation that sees them come home and become a nation again will not pass away until everything happens. Now, uh, you know this, and I don't mean to belabor the point, but Probably 70% of the congregation has never heard a prophetic teaching that on May 14, 1948, the Israeli people came back home and once again occupied the nation Israel. They had been gone for almost 2,000 years. They had been gone from their land. In fact, Jesus even said it. He said, see this temple, there's coming a day when they're going to tear it down and this whole place is going to be decimated. And Jesus knew that just two or three decades after that, the Romans would come down under General Titus, and they would totally destroy the temple and take all the people and scatter them all over the world. And in 70 AD, after 70 AD, Israel was no longer a nation. It didn't exist. So for almost 2,000 years, 
Israel had no hope. They never thought they would have a nation again. But God had already spoken to this issue way back in Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and they were very, very dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. He then said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We're completely cut off. Therefore, son of man, you prophesy. Now, I love this. I wish I had time to stop. He said, I'm not going to do it for you. You prophesy. You speak the word of God. You say what God's saying. And he says, you say this, thus says the Lord. Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of the graves, my people. I'll put my spirit within you. You will come to life and I'll place you on your own land. Then you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I, the Lord, have done it. Now, this prophecy from way back then came to pass on May 14th, 1948, and I believe this is the central key to Bible prophecy. On May 14th, 1948, the clock began to tick. This generation will not pass away. If you look in the Greek, everyone of this generation will not pass away until everything happens. This is referring to people my age. So I believe the Lord's return is very, very close. Many of you have heard of the term diaspora, and that's simply what I've been talking about. In A.D. 70, the Jews were dispersed all over the world. They didn't have their own nation. For almost 2,000 years, there was no nation in Israel at all. Now, I'm going to throw some things out to you today and next week that, you know, they're just my opinions, okay? But I believe the Word of God has all kinds of hidden messages for us, all kinds. Now, with this in mind, I believe that the Bible is very clear that somewhere around the year 2000, the Lord is going to return. It could be 2028, 2025, 2029, but I believe it's kind of a key. For example, look at Hosea 6, 1, and 3. I find it very intriguing. You can take it or leave it, but here it is. It says, come, let us return to the Lord. Now, remember the Bible says that a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. It says, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he, he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days, and he'll raise us up on the third day that we might live before him. Now, I want you to think about this. When the Lord gave the patriarchs, or he told them he's going to give them the promised land, he gave them dimensions. He gave them boundary lines. He wanted them to, to you know, totally possess all of the land, not just part of it, but all of it. Now, here's where the problem arises. I don't know if all of you know, but the three major religions of the world all see Abraham as their father. The Jews believe Abraham's their father. The Christians believe Abraham's their father. And the Muslims believe that Abraham is their father. In fact, in the Quran, Abraham is the second most referenced person in their holy book. Now, here's where the problem is, is really made, made really worse than, than, 
than you can possibly believe. The problem arises when you go back to our Bible, and in Genesis, it says that Abraham was told that he was going to have a promised child, and through that promised child will come the birth of a nation. Well, you know the story by heart. Abraham, what does he do? He's waiting on God to get Sarah pregnant for this whole thing to come down. He gets impatient like many of us do, and he goes out and gets his wife's handmaiden named Hagar and has a baby through her. His name is Ishmael. And Abraham says, man, I got the promised child here. Here he is. And God says, no, 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 no. You did this on your own. I'm going to let Sarah get pregnant. I'm going to make her pregnant. I'm going to make that happen. And through her will come the real promised child. Bless you. That was, that, you feel better now, don't you? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, but Ishmael was there, and God said, let the blessing be on him. And God said, no, he's not the promised child. And so later on, Sarah gets pregnant. They have the son named Isaac. And God said, that's the promised child. Here's the problem. The Muslim Arab world says, no, 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 no. The Jews messed with the Bible. They turned it around. Ishmael was always the promised child. It was not Abraham. And the land that, that Abraham promised Isaac was really promised to Ishmael. So today, the promised land, even through the holy word of the Quran and the Bible, it belongs to us. It doesn't belong to the Jews. That is our land. And so there's a religious thing going on here, and they both lay claim to the land. Now, back in 1948, Israel declared their independence, and they didn't even have time to get their bags unpacked until they were attacked by their neighbors. A welcoming party, right? I mean, they just were in their land, just, just hours and a few days, just there, and all of a sudden, their neighbors came after them to destroy them. Who was it? It was Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon. They all came. Look at map number one, and you'll see what's going on. Look at, they just got into their homeland. They were declared a nation, now Israel, and here comes the enemy from every direction to destroy them, to move them off the land. Why? Because they thought it was their land. This isn't your land. It's our land. It was promised to us through, through Father Abraham before you messed the Bible up. And so they were attacked. Look at map number two and just give you another focal point here. You see Israel, a little bitty brown place down there, little bitty. And then right around Israel is all their enemies, all these Muslim nations and, and Egypt and Iraq and Syria and Jordan. They're, they're surrounded. This little nation is totally surrounded. So these nations, there's a war. And it's crazy because Israel defeats these four or five very, very armed nations. In fact, in Amir uh, Sarfati's book, he said Israel wasn't prepared for war. They just, they just received their land. He said, he said they had two planes in their air force, two. The pilots had to drive with one hand and drop bombs with the other hand. He said they only had five armed vehicles. And he said their army was made up mostly of Holocaust survivors who had never handled a gun in their life. And with that motley group, they defeated this well-equipped, well-trained armies. And how they do it? By God's power. I mean, I wish I could begin to, to tell you some of the stories that come out of Israel about how that God intervenes in their wars. See, I believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still the miracle-producing God. And, and you'll see over and over again that, 
that the Israeli armies have all these different God stories. For example, I was reading one this week about how the Israelis took up this monastery as a headquarters. And they're there and they're surrounded by the Arab armies. And they realized they were running out of resources and supplies. They didn't have much ammunition, not much food, no water, anything. And they decided that they needed to retreat, uh, that, that they had to, had no choice. What they didn't know is that the Arab armies were surrounding them. They were out of resources in a bigger and worse way than Israel was. And so the last remaining soldiers in the monastery, so they decided to retreat. And as they went to walk out the door, they heard this voice saying, don't retreat. And it came out of what they thought was a broken radio that they hadn't used forever. And so they didn't retreat. And lo and behold, a day later, the Arab armies retreated. And new forces came in and they were saved. Uh, another, another story that they tell, and I've got like 40 of them. I just wrote down two or three. But they were surrounded by Arab armies. I think it was the Jordanians who surrounded them. Or it might have been the Syrians in this one. I don't remember which. And they only had 25 bullets left. And they decided, hey, you know, it is what it is. We're going to make every last bullet count no matter what. And as they were preparing to do that, all of a sudden they heard commotion in these Arab armies that were surrounding them, and they all began to run and retreat, run and retreat. Later on, talking to a soldier in the Arab army, he said that Abraham appeared in the sky, and he was defending the Israelites. And so they all ran. Another time when the Syrian army was surrounding them, they had a bunch of tanks coming at them, a whole bunch of tanks. They didn't have any tanks. And all they had was a Molotov cocktails. They started making those and throwing them at the tanks. They said one guy got lucky in a Molotov cocktail, hit the tank and blew it up. And the enemy thought for sure that they had anti-tank missiles and they retreated. And they've got story after story about hands appearing in heaven, angels appearing. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. In one story... Uh, that is probably one of the more popular ones. Uh, a platoon of soldiers, a big platoon, found themselves in a minefield late, late in the evening. And they couldn't move. They were surrounded by mines. And it was dark. It grew, the darkness fell right away. And they go, we don't know what to do. And so they prayed that night, God intervened, God intervened, because they knew when daylight came, they'd be sitting ducks. They'd all be picked off by the enemy. And they began to pray and pray and pray. And all of a sudden, they said a 20 minute wind came up, the most ferocious wind they've ever seen. They had to get down to the ground and duck their head between their legs and try to cover up. All this dust was blowing. When the wind ended, they said they could see every mine on the, every one of them was exposed by this wind. And they were able to walk out safe and unharmed. And so we've got, you know, story after story. Whether they're true or not, I have no idea. But I know that that's the same God that's identified in the Old Testament. Same God doing the same things. Now, they're hated by all these people around them. They're surrounded. This little nation's surrounded. I think that's one of the reasons God chose Israel. He wants to show his bigness. He chose the littlest nation, the dinky, dinky one, you know. Not much bigger than, you know, than, oh, it's, it's horribly small. Uh, when you go to Israel, you'll see we can drive plumb across the country in just a few hours. We're at the other side. But look at Psalms 83. It says, O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. 
Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Now, Sarfati also tells other stories. And because he's Jewish and because he's well-refined, I choose to believe his stories. I wrote more down, but time tells me today I just don't have time to share them. So let's fast forward to June 1967, the Six-Day War. That's a war where Egypt, Syria, and Jordan uh, gets into it again with Israel, and they go to war. And again, Israel defeats them. The war only lasts six days, whereas the 1948 war lasted about 10 months. Now, not only do they destroy their enemy in this second war in 1967, but they also gain back a bunch of land, land that was supposed to be theirs in the first place, land they were supposed to get, land that God gave them, but they never received it. From Syria, they got the Golan Heights. From Jordan, they took the West Bank. From Egypt, they got the Sinai Peninsula and the old city of Jerusalem. Now, uh, first, I got to bring some of you back, and this is review. But Syria, when they occupied the Golan Heights, pretend this platform is the Golan Heights and we're way above Israel. Israel's down there. They would set their machine guns up, all of their, their rifles, and they would sit there and pick off the Jewish people every single day of the week. They'd sit there and they bullied themselves from that stance. It was a beautiful place to, to, to reign over Israel and, and, and force your way on them. I mean, they, they, just, they just intimidated them day in, day out. Now, when this war happened, and there is a rule of war that says if any lands invade you, and in that invasion you have a war and you get land from them, you get to keep it. But here's the problem. Most of the international community today does not believe that the Golan Heights belongs to Israel. They say it is still belongs to Syria. They believe the Gaza Peninsula still belongs to Egypt. They believe the West Bank still belongs to Jordan. And Israel just stole it. Now, add to that the fact that on the Golan Heights, there was just found, what, about five, six years ago, there was found these huge oil deposits. Almost a billion barrels of oil is found on the Golan Heights. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're Syria, and you know the international community backs you, and you know they say the Golan Heights is yours, it's not Israel's. And Syria now has Russia living with them. They've got Iran living with them. They've got the Hezbollah living with them. I mean, they're right next door to Israel. They're ready. I mean, if you're Syria, why in the world are you going to wait too long to go take the Golan Heights back? The whole international community is behind you. And you've got Russia behind you. And you know the United States is probably too busy to even go over there and help you. I mean, it's going to happen. God says there's going to be a war. Believe me, there's going to be a war. Now, Israel will not, they will die before they give that land back to Syria. They will not do it. Now, this loan has the potential of starting a great war. Now, keep in mind that Iran has said publicly many, many times, we want Israel annihilated. We don't want them just defeated in war. We want them annihilated. We want them driven off the map. We don't want Israel to exist anymore. Now, they also, and I wish I had time to talk about it today, uh, they've also discovered natural gas, just huge amounts. And Israel right now, with Greece and others, they're building underlying uh, uh, 
underlying, uh, uh, what am I trying to say, pipes that are going to go up under the sea and they're going to go up into Europe and they're going to supply natural gas for Europe. Now, everybody loves that except one nation. Russia hates it because they're competing with them. They, they, they have been given natural gas and oil to places, and they need the money, so they're not happy about it. All this is going to really come into the picture next week. Uh, now, that's one reason that Iran is trying to make nuclear weapons. Uh, they're, they're enriching their uranium beyond legal limits. They're trying to get nuclear weapons quickly, and one of the, the reasons they want them is to destroy Israel. And Israel knows that they want them to destroy the, the, the nation. Now, this is what's crazy. Israel has come out and said, we will not let Iran get nuclear weapons. There's no way. It's not going to happen. We'll die first. We will not let them get them. Now, here's the thing that kind of mystified me. I remember being back in Vegas probably eight years ago or nine, preaching about uh, Bible prophecy. And I remember in that study, I said, you know what? Iran is going to have a nuclear weapon. And, and with all the study and research I've done, it should happen this year. It should happen this year. And that was about in 2017. Now, a lot of time has passed, and I thought, what happened? They were supposed to have a nuclear weapon years ago. They were right at the brink of having one. And then uh, Amar Sar Sarfati uh, said something in his book, and I pulled the page out, very interesting. He says, over the past decade and a half, key nuclear scientists in Iran have disappeared one by one. January 15, 2007, one expert in uranium enrichment died mysteriously while working on an Iranian nuclear facility in Isfahan. Three years later, one of their leading scientists went out and a car explosion killed him. And then later on, Another Iranian nuclear scientist was killed outside his home by gunmen on motorcycles. A few months later, a massive explosion took out more of them. And it goes on and on and on. And then he goes on and says uh, that one of the legendary Israeli spy agencies went in to Iran, Tehran. And they went in there, and I don't know how they pulled it off. They stole almost a half a ton of documents, thousands of pages, instructional books, they stole videos that told them how to make nuclear weapons. They took it all. They stole it all. And I, after reading this, I thought, that's why they never developed a nuclear weapon. Israel didn't let them. thought that was very interesting. Now, as, as most of you know, Iran and Russia has moved down right next door to Israel, living in Syria now. They're all there because God's word, as we will see next week, said that these nations, and it, it identifies them specifically, Iran... Russia, Libya, that these nations specifically, there's four or five of them mentioned in Scripture, they're going to attack Israel. So they're down there ahead of schedule. They're right there next door ready to go. And they brought Hezbollah with them with all their drones. It's just waiting to happen. Now, I was going to bring a balloon out here today as an illustration and blow it up. This is what's happening in Israel. All this stuff's going on, and every time these things happen, you blow a little more in the balloon, a little more in the balloon, until all of a sudden the balloon pops. And that's what's going to happen over there. I mean, it's going to happen. And see, we live in a bubble here in the United States. We don't get it. Those people over there are living every day with their life at stake. They don't live like we live. Uh, 
uh, we, we live in a bubble. We're like, what, 5 or 6% of the world's population. We don't see all the African people starving, uh, dying. We live in a bubble. We, we've got to somehow, you know, come out of that bubble. Uh, I mean, just example. I could give you a bunch of these, but August 22nd this year, just a few months ago, ABC News, Israel bombs weapon site in Gaza after border clash. Uh, December 13th, 2021, Israel jets bomb uh, chemical sites in Syria. And I give you oh, occasion after occasion. It's constant war. When we were on our last Israel trip, we went up to the, the Golan Heights, and we were up there, and we went right to the border of Syria. We could see right down here. As we were watching things going on in Syria, ISIS was moving around. All of a sudden, there were bombs going off and explosions. And you have, uh, you know, uh, the world forces there. They got their, their, their binoculars, and they're watching up there. It's a crazy atmosphere. In fact, Josh got his camera out and started taking pictures of all the bombings. And we went to the store to get something as we were going to leave. And the store owner said, oh, yeah, every night a bunch of Israeli people come up here. They put their lawn chairs out, and they watch all this bombing. It's like fireworks. Uh, but we live in such a small world. We're over here concerned about which president we should elect that'll pay off our college bills. And we're so messed up. We got all of our internal little trivial things we're worried about when they're fighting for their life. My first Israel trip really blew me away. I wasn't ready for the culture shock. Uh, we, we got off the plane and we were driving down through some of the cities. And I saw uh, lots of these little 18, 19-year-old soldiers, especially my attention was drawn to these girls, cute little girls, and I would see them lined up at the bathroom outside, a bathroom thing, a mirror, and they'd be putting on their lipstick and doing their hair, and all of them have these assault rifles on their shoulders, all of them do. Uh, young guys, that, I mean, look like babies carrying around assault rifles. That's the way they live. Now, back to the Holy Land. God gave them the land, gave them all of the land. Now, in the Old Testament, Joel, Ezekiel, and a lot of different books warn the people and the nations of trying to divide that land up. God said, don't try to divide it up. Don't even think about it. He said, I gave this land to my people. Every inch of it I gave to my people. And you know what? Anybody tries to divide that land, they're going to have to deal with me. Well, early 2000s, Ariel Sharon was the prime minister of Israel. And Ariel Sharon came up with this plan to, to start dividing the land. It was called the disengagement plan. And he was going to start giving land up so they could have peace. They were going to trade land for peace. And so he's going to give up some of the West Bank, going to, going to give up the, the Gaza Strip and some of that. And so in 2003, the plan was proposed. In 2004, the plan was adopted. 2005, December of 2005, they were going to start implementing it. And in, in one of... Uh, his last conversations, Sharon said, what we're going to do is we'll take one-third of the land for ourselves. We'll give two-thirds to the Arabs. And he was making all these plans. But you know what? Just a few days went by, and Sharon had a massive stroke. He was put into a, a, a long-term care facility, and he stayed unconscious for eight years, and then he died. This happened just a few days and weeks after this plan. I'm not saying God took Sharon out. I'm not saying he didn't. You be the judge. I just know that God's serious about what he says. And when he says you shall not do it, you shouldn't do it. Somewhere in, the, in this, this whole lifetime that we're on this earth, we've got to get a fear of God. When God says something, you don't mess with him. When he says this is the way it is, uh, you better, better listen to him. Now, uh, years ago, 
I, I put this up on the screen, but I'm going to bring it back up for some of you. I talked about the sheen. I thought this is very interesting. Again, this is food for thought. I know a lot of people will say, well, you can't prove that biblically. I'm just giving you some things that, that fascinate me. The sheen thing fascinates me. You say, what's the sheen? It's spelled S-H-I-N. Uh, the sheen is the 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's a letter they use to represent God. It looks like a W. That's what it looks like, a W. Now, many of the Jewish homes have prayer boxes in front of their homes. And these prayer boxes are called musazes. And, and on their musazes, they have the sheen, that, that, that letter of the, of the alphabet, because it stands for God Jehovah. I'll show you a slide here of a sheen. That is a sheen, spelled S-H-I-N, pronounced sheen. It looks like a W, right? Okay, let me show you slide four. This is a masuza. And all of them, I had several pictures of them, but I just thought I'd show you one, you'd get the idea. See, you got the sheen on there. It represents God. It, it's, it, it stands for his name. Now, with that in mind, look at Ezra 6 and 12. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it. So as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem, I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Look at 2 Chronicles 6, 6. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there, and I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. Look at the next verse, 1 Kings eleven thirty six. But to his son I'll give one tribe, that my servant David might have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. Look at 2 Chronicles 33 and 4. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, my name shall be in Jerusalem forever. Now, there are three main valleys that make up uh, the city of Jerusalem. There's the Teropian Valley, the Valley of Hinnom, and the Kidron Valley. Now, I'm going to show you something that I find very interesting. This is a picture uh, taken from above looking at Israel, and that's outlining all three valleys. What is that? That's a sheen. That's the name of God. And it is my opinion and some others that this is actually not a coincidence. God said, my name is on the holy city. Don't touch it, don't destroy it, or you're in big trouble. Now, what are we facing the future? Well, right now as we sit here today, the rapture is overdue. I believe we're past midnight. The rapture is going to happen. But what am I saying to you today? I want to leave you with this because I'm going to pick it up next week. And that is, it's time to repent. We, we need a sermon on repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent of your sins. Come to the altar, deal with them. No more time for sleeping, man. I'm telling you as I stand here, the Lord's coming back. And for some of you, some of you, I hope it's a slim mi minority, some of you are going to hate that I ever said that because you're going to come to church after the rapture and I ain't going to be here. And most of these people aren't going to be here. We're going to be gone. And you're going to say, oh my gosh, he tried to tell me. Now, now, someone asked me, I put a flyer out years ago called 14 Things to Do If You Miss the Rapture. Someone asked me to redo it and put it out there again. That if you do miss the rapture, don't give up hope. You can still go to heaven, but here's what you need to do. And so I'm telling you, he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. And it's time for you to repent, find your purpose in life, start fulfilling it. In fact, you know, there's only one kind of Christian that I know that's described in the Bible, and that's people that make God number one. He's number one. To me, that, that's the description of a Christian. You can have number two loves, number threes, but number one. And I went to bed last night thinking, you know, I'm so consumed in serving God. 
If you saw my schedule for 2022, oh my gosh, I have some work to do. But nevertheless, you know what? I went to bed thinking, you know, I get such adrenaline rush out of serving God, seeing people healed, seeing people saved, hearing their God stories. Had a lady write me yesterday, and she goes, man, she says, you know, I had a near-death experience. I went to heaven, and I want to hear that story. Uh, I hear quite often people have those stories, but I like to hear them. I had somebody call me yesterday and said, man, you know what? I'm going through all this stuff. I said, do you have a, a copy of my book, Firestarters? He said, yeah. I said, do you read it? Well, I haven't. I said, look, today's number one, day number one, January 1st, look what it says. It speaks directly to what you're going through, directly. I don't know how that book does that. I wrote it, but God has it in control right now. So once you give your life to God, you get so pumped with adrenaline rushes. And See, we were made to be adrenaline uh, rushing type of living people. Uh, we're supposed to live and have a, a challenging lifestyle. And when you give your life totally to God, you'll have more challenges than you can ever dream of. And you don't have any adrenaline and any energy left over for sin. That's just the way it works. You're so on fire for God. So, so get right with God. Repent. Just uh, if you're not born again today, just get alone somewhere. Or come up with our prayer team and say, God, you know what? I want to change teams. I want to start living for you. So send your Holy Spirit. Right now, I'm giving you permission. Come into my body. Live inside of me. Change me and take over the controls of my life. That's all you got to do and believe it. And the journey begins. Love you to death. Uh, I'll be back next week if the Lord be willing and we'll pick up right here, okay? God bless. See you here, there, in the air. Thank you for listening. We pray that this message has ministered to your heart. If you don't already have a church you call home, we invite you to join us at Valley Bible Fellowship for worship, Bible study, fellowship, and more. We're at 2300 East Brundage Lane in Bakersfield, California, near Mount Vernon and Freeway 58. Reach us by phone at 661-325-2251 or visit our website at vbf.org. Here is our King.